Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future in Review podcast, where we talk with leaders in tech, investment, and business about the future of technology and the global economy. I'm your host, Barrett Anderson, the COO of Future in Review, which The Economist has called the best technology conference in the world. And I am very excited to be here today with Jim Lauterbach, who is the editor and publisher of Inside the Creator Economy. He's a former CEO of VidCon, and most importantly, he is an advisory board member for Future in Review. So we get to talk pretty frequently about what's going on in the media business. And we are going to do a little bit more of that today. Jim, welcome. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So we were talking a little bit before this started about what's going on in the media industry today and kind of this resurfacing of the end of the bundle, as you described it. It's such an interesting time to look at traditional media and television because we've got all of these strikes going on. Actors are really trying to assert their rights and reclaim a lot of the financial compensation that they had previously had that's been stripped away. We've got AI and generative AI suddenly playing this really big role in the creation of media and content, both in helpful ways and ways that kind of undermine creators' rights. And I'm curious if you can just tell me overall, what is your, where do you see this going? Look, let's think about it historically, right? We've lived through the digital transformation of media in print, in music. And now, finally, I thought it would take a lot faster than this, the <laughs> sort of traditional visual medium of movies and television and all that are finally being disrupted by digital technology, the way we saw magazines and the way we saw radio and all these other things just go poof. So what we're seeing, and it's been a slow roll for, you think about the traditional television bundle, whether it's cable or satellite, it was 80 or 85% of the households 10 or 15 years ago that subscribed. We're now below 50%. And what it means is that traditional model of, we have these really big companies that are really big keepers that spend a lot of money making a lot of entertainment, and then they serve it out to people through the subscription model is completely going away. And that means that the just that so many things that have been funded by having mass numbers of people paying for things they didn't want is crumbling. And there are things coming in, but there have been cuttable stakes that happened over the last couple of weeks that I think are really interesting to get into because it's almost like we're going to look back at that and say, yeah, that was really the beginning of the end. That is when the dike got a hole in it, and suddenly all the water rushed out. There was no one there to stick their finger in. They've been sticking their <laughs> fingers in a lot of holes, but this hole might be a little bit big. So, what, so, so, I, what, so tell me what those things were. Let's recap. Yeah, yeah. So what's going on right now is as less and less people subscribe to these television bundles, there's less money for every person that subscribes and less money to go to ABC, NBC, CBS, Discovery, Viacom, and I've sold companies to two of those companies, and I know the inner workings of them. But finally, the one thing that was propping all of television up, which is sports rights, has finally been breached. And so Charter Spectrum, one of the top, I don't know, four cable companies in the U.S., maybe three, they basically just said to ABC, Disney, ESPN, eh, we're not going to pay more for what you're giving us because we have less customers. And they not only took the channels off of their cable system, which means if you are a charter subscriber, you no longer get Disney yes, Channel, yes, you no longer get yes. but ESPN. 
And they also said in a note to their shareholders, this video business, it's not really making money for us anymore. It's not really a really substantial part of what we're doing anyway. We may not be in that business anymore is basically what they said. And that's okay. So which business are they in? If if you're not providing content as a cable bundler, <laughs> what are you providing? Bits, the delivery of bits. They have every one of these big companies has transformed their business into delivering bits to the home via cable modems or fiber in some cases that they've run out or other things. That business of providing digital signals, the internet, mm-hmm. and in some cases, voice signals through our digital phones is what they've built a big profitable business on. And TV is just one of the things that's delivered over that digital network. And it's not really making money for them. I mean, Spectrum is actually telling their customers, they're about to tell their customers, like, hey, you're not getting ESPN. You could watch it on Fubo. Oh, and here's a link where you could go and subscribe to Fubo. Go ahead. We don't care. We don't want it anymore. Okay, so this is an interesting thing because you're talking about cable bundlers, but if the new bundlers are Fubo, Netflix, Disney Plus, and so at the same time, they're at the moment they're not giving up entirely, but I do think that there is a little bit of pushback on those providers as well. And I'm curious if we can talk a little bit more from your perspective about how you see that. Yeah, a couple things happening there. First of all, if you look at the digital delivery of video signals, YouTube is not only delivering cats on skateboards, but they are the biggest virtual cable bundle out there. There are 10 or 11 million subscribers to YouTube service here in the U.S. They are the biggest virtual delivery of what was traditional television. And in, or I don't know when you're releasing this, but two days after we record this, when football, NFL football starts here in the U.S., they will be also be delivering a substantial number of NFL games to people through the Sunday ticket thing that they're doing. So YouTube, in many ways, part of this business is entirely indistinguishable of what Comcast or Charter or other people were delivering a couple of years ago in many ways and for many customers. The trouble is, is that the big delivery content delivery companies, creation and delivery, whether it's CBS or Disney or Viacom, CBR or whoever, look at Discovery, for example, these guys all went to streaming and they all went from having four or five customers, the big cable customers, DirecTV and maybe YouTube, to now direct to consumer. We've got to get 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 million people to pay us 10 or $15 a month. They've realized the economics aren't working for them. And that even though they've tried to be Netflix, that's not working. And they're not making enough money from the direct-to-consumer subscriptions from companies that have never been DTC companies anyway. They're not making enough money to cover up for the loss of the subscriber fees that the cable operators paid them. So there's this, there's this problem there, and they need to right-size their business. You're talking about the what, networks. The, yeah, the, the TV networks, the big four or five TV companies. and figure out what businesses they're in, how to make money, and what they need to stop doing. What do they need to stop doing? Creating shows nobody wants to watch. <laughs> Spending lots of money on sports rights that were great when everybody, even people who aren't sports fans, would pay for them. Figuring out how they're going to actually make a profitable business there. And by the way, it ties into sports franchises as well, because there was a lot of money in sports 
and it was given to the NBA and the NHL and the NFL and Major League Baseball. But that's going to go away. And what does that mean for the sports uh, franchises as well? I think there's a reckoning to come there, but that's not going to play out because the rights go through, I think it's 2025 for basketball here in the U.S. and maybe 30 or 31 or something for NFL. So that will be an interesting slow roll of a rock off a cliff too. So I want to draw a little bit of a comparison here with music, right? Because in the music industry, we saw uh, artists like no longer being compensated in the same way once in this transition to digital. Now, there's a pretty funny song actually on Spotify called 0.4 cents a play about how much an artist makes from the average Spotify platform situation. And now, today, if you are an artist, if we look at the creator economy and, and musical artists side by side, the way to make money is not actually in putting out music. It's in live events and concerts, right? And merchandise, essentially. So I'm curious if you see any kind of parallel happening there with sports, where it used to be that you could just make money by putting on sports, but now is will live events become the new they're already a money maker but will that get bigger i think the problem is that it, sports have always been about live events right you're not watching sports games a day after they happen or a week after they happen so it's different from music where if you like the music you're just going to keep playing it and playing it but the problem is, is that people like to watch sports live they want to stream it, but we just don't know how much the sports fans are going to pay for the right to stream it. And we're going to see that play out with Sunday Ticket with the NFL. The way Sunday Ticket works is you can get, if you're a football fan, I'm in San Francisco. If I'm a San Francisco football fan, I can get it over the air, put an antenna up. Whenever I want, I can watch their games because the rights are on the local broadcast channels and those aren't going away anytime soon. But if, say, I'm a fan of the New England Patriots, which I happen to be, the only way for me to watch the games is to spend three, four, five. Now it's about $500 a year for essentially 15 games that I would stream to my house via the Sunday ticket that YouTube now purchased. You know what? That's too much money for me. I'm not that much of a fan. So every sports fan is going to have to decide how much is that individual game worth to them? How mm -hmm. much is that season worth to them? And I don't think there are going to be enough sports fans willing to pony up enough money to support the big sports franchises that we have out there in every city that they're in. And so there will be less money to go around. So I think we'll go through the same thing with music where we may see that, that yes, it's important that people go to the sporting events and that they stream them, but there's going to be a lot less of them to go around to every single one. And who knows, maybe that will end up with really small sports leagues like <laughs> football or ultimate Frisbee that ends up being at least having a chance to get an audience and make money. All right, so we've talked about the end of sports. We've talked about the end of bundling. <laughs> it's not the end of sports. It's just a change. No, sports will never die. Sports lives on in all of our hearts in various ways, and it will always be a part of our culture. It's an extension of Roman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The gladiators. However, <laughs> what do you see as coming up and replacing these things? I think, again, nothing, they're not going away, but they will be 
consumed less and less. Well, there are only so many hours in the day that we can actually consume media, although some people are really good at consuming Pushing. three or four pieces yeah. of media at a time. Okay, I get that. But what we see is more individualized content. We see more content tailored to where you are at the time. You can watch TV all day long, but if you're out roaming around, you've got this glowing rectangle in your pocket that is an entertainment delivery device that is now giving you short form to scroll. It's now giving you longer form and you've got to wait. It's not, so we're seeing different types of creators and content being delivered to people where they don't need to watch the same shows that everybody else is watching at the same time. So there are so many different services. I won't say anybody can be a video star, but anybody now has the opportunity to be a video star because the gatekeepers in New York and London and Mumbai and Sydney and Tokyo are going away. And the new gatekeepers are the platforms and the platforms are relatively uh, democratic. Relatively democratic. Relatively. They still do a lot of things through their algorithms to promote or push away things. And when you get to, we talk talking about platforms that are not based in democratic com countries, TikTok, others, they will end up promoting things that they want to promote or even say like X and things like that here okay. in the US. So what are you seeing on that? Okay, so I was talking to Taylor Lorenz about this on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, and she's. She thinks that YouTube is the most democratic of platforms for creators. That was her opinion. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think YouTube is very open. They've got their issues as well, but I trust YouTube more than I trust Meta's platforms, much more than I trust TikTok. I'm not so sure what to think about Snap. I'm a little worried about Twitch, but I think Twitch tries hard. But as a broader platform, definitely YouTube. Okay. And of the new platforms that you've seen emerging, are there any that you think, aside from let's hold the new, sorry, streams? No, what, my, my brain just went blank. The new meta platform. That, oh. <laughs> this is one of those moments where you're like, yeah, I know. I'm on it. I've got an account. Anyways, you know what I'm talking about. The new yeah. Facebook, Twitter. Holding that aside for a moment, are there any independent or new or emerging platforms that are not owned by Meta or a Chinese parent company that you're interested in or excited about? Yeah, I'm excited about Roblox, by the way. I think Roblox as a platform is in many ways what we were doing. It, it's a lot of the things coming together that we've been talking about. They're actually doing a really good job with cryptocurrency, although they're not calling it that and it's not on the blockchain. That would be called Robux. They're doing a really good job with NFTs, although they're not calling it that and they're not, uh, it's not on the blockchain, but they're allowing pretty much anybody to jump in and create digital goods and sell them. And they're creating these great, they're allowing anybody to create experiences that people can then be part of that can be recorded, streamed or whatever. And so it's media. If you think of video games as media, which mm -hmm. I do. So there's definitely media happening there. And I, so I really like what they're doing. And I think anybody who's not paying attention to Roblox or Epics as a media platform doing things that are engaging audiences and allowing creators to create, they're missing the boat. And if you are not, I feel like for, if you're above the age of 
35 or 40, you might be a lot less likely to be a Roblox user just by by data point. Can you fill our audience in on what is the primary experience as a Roblox user? Why would, why use it as a Depends on what you're doing in many ways. And it started as a way to play video games. It was a sort of an upgraded version of Minecraft, but it moved on in its own way where anybody could create a game or an experience, but you can go there and hang out and chat with people. There are now live concerts inside of Roblox and the folks at Roblox are building it and they want a billion people on Roblox in a couple of years. Will they get there? I don't know, but it's more of an interactive platform, but you as a passive Consumer can also watch your favorite Roblox creators do their things on Roblox, or you can participate with them too. So think of it as an immersive platform, a little bit World of Warcraft, but that allows you to be part of that. Yeah, it sounds, I've used Roblox a little bit, but I'm. it sounds like what you're describing sounds much more like a Twitch to me, right? Where it's like, in some ways you are, it's more interactive and more about creating content and engaging in content and really not just reading tweets or not just watching videos, but much more social. Yeah. And experiencing it together in, in many ways it is, we've been blathering on about virtual reality in the metaverse for about 30 years or so in many ways they're creating it and nobody's really paying attention. They are, but. It, everybody thinks about Meta and this yeah. and that and Oculus. You can actually now, another interesting thing that happened recently is Roblox is now available on the Oculus too. So you can play, it's in beta, but you can play Roblox on the Oculus, which I think is a game changer. And a, a million people downloaded the beta in like the first week. So it's, there's something really interesting happening there. And are there, I'm curious, there's one of the things that we're talking about at Fire this year is loneliness right and the rise of loneliness during the pandemic yep. um we're also seeing this play out i think in organized religion where a lot of people are leaving organized religion traditional organized religion and looking for experiences of community that are not necessarily built around religion is this kind of filling in that gap yeah in many ways one of the things that I think is filling the gap in is wherever you're building a private community and it exists in a lot of different places. There are communities on Roblox that can be private, or there can be communities that you join that feel special to you because it's of shared interest. There are private communities on WhatsApp, on Telegram, mm -hmm. on Discord. Discord is another part of that. And I think we're seeing more and more that these private communities on whether they're social platforms or digital platforms or face-to-face are the ways that people are connecting with each other and trying to get a, and, and trying to push back that loneliness. There are so many opportunities to connect, connect with people that are like-minded. Now, I think a lot of it is how do you find them and how do you make sure you like them? And how do you make sure it's an experience that really gives you that? But I think it's a real big deal. And I think a lot of the connectivity that we're seeing in private communities is pushing back on I mean, look, the promise of social media where we're going to connect everybody in the world and we're all going to be in one digital place, we're all going to connect together, it's going to be wonderful. It actually wasn't. Yeah. We saw hatred. We saw loneliness. Right. We saw mental illness from people wanting to live that perfect lifestyle that nobody was really ever living. 
but private communities of people that are just your friends or people that you're that you share something with can be so valuable and Roblox is a place where that's happening, but so are a bunch of other platforms and other ways as well. It's like really face-to-face -to -face too in communities. I have, I, the only thing I still use Facebook for, and one of the things I see it being really valuable for, mm -hmm. beyond marketplace, buying and selling furniture from your neighbors, is our groups, right? So I'm in multiple groups of people from around the country who have very specific interests, niche interests, which kind of takes us back to the interest graph concept, yep. right? From Twitter, which is yep. what kind of what Twitter made Twitter successful with the interest graph versus the social graph. And I'm curious, as you think about these two interplays of like social circles versus interest circles versus professional circles or work environments what do you are there new emerging graphs are there new ways of organizing that are you're seeing play out more successfully or that are being experimented with yeah you mentioned the work graph and i would be remiss if i didn't talk a little bit about linkedin because i do a lot of stuff on linkedin and i think linkedin has really got it's, it's starting to shine it's yes it's full of full of tech pros and full of cringy people and full of all sorts of of just people praising themselves for no reason. <laughs> but there are... Also, Isn't that every platform? Yeah, you can say that about yeah. every platform. Yeah. There are also, though, groups there of people that uh, have shared interests, and it's on the work side. We spend so much time in work, but it's a place where you can have your work connections and get value out of it. It used to be just a place for resumes to find a new job. Now you can actually deliver real value. And, and I see a lot of people who were on Twitter starting to come over to LinkedIn and be like, well, this is kind of not like Twitter, but okay. And I like it. Yeah. So I think that's a place. And Discord, look, there are all sorts of private and public communities on Discord that are really interesting that, I don't know what you call it, call it your, I don't, I don't know what sort of a graph it is, but it's a passion graph maybe. And so there's that as well. So there. And, but also you talked about the content graph. I think you look at TikTok, which is like the negative expression of the content graph. Right. We know all the topics and contents you like, and we know how to keep you watching forever. And we're just going to keep shoving things down your throat to keep you addicted. So you never leave. So even though there are some good places for content graphs and topic graphs, some unhealthy places as well. So it depends in many ways, product can define experience. And we see that play out when you look at LinkedIn on one side and TikTok on the other. If you were to design your own social network. A scary thought. <laughs> what would it be? What do you feel like you're missing in your social life right now? I don't know. I think it's a social network where we all just go out and hike around the woods and go out <laughs> on the beach and play Frisbee. That's what I do in all of my... T I spend so much time on work that anytime I'm not working, I want to be outside, right? With my friends. Exactly. It's, remember in the early days of social network, we had Dogster and Catster? Maybe we need to return to Dogster, but instead it's for both dog owners and their dogs as a way to get together. <laughs> I'm into it. All right. 
I will join. I'll see you on the beach. You bring your dog. I'll bring my dog. And um, in the meantime, I will also see you at Future in Review, November 6th through 9th in L.A. at the Terranea Resort. It's going to be awesome. We have a really incredible lineup, and we hope that you all will join us there. Yep. Can't wait to be there. I'll see you there. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. Bye.